From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Mr. President, Prince Philip and I are so glad that you are visiting the United Kingdom again. Your visit to this country inevitably reminds us of our shared history, our common language, and our strong intellectual and cultural links. It also reminds us that your country twice came to the rescue of the free and democratic world when it was facing military disaster. On each occasion, after the end of those destructive wars, the generosity of the United States made a massive contribution to our economic recovery. Today, the United States remains our most important ally. Ladies and gentlemen, we are here to celebrate the tried, tested, and yes, special relationship between our two countries. I therefore ask you now to join me in raising your glasses to the continued health, happiness, and prosperity of the people of the United States of America. I was talking to my senior producer, actually I should say our senior producer, Gina Gamboni. You hear her at the forefront of this show and at the conclusion. And she was asking me one day how things are going, and I intimated to her that the fact is, is that when anything happens with the royals, if you're British living in the US of A, you are besieged with a series of well-intended questions. Now, the curious thing for us Brits is that America officially rejected the idea of a monarchy. Let's remember, 1776. And yet Americans, it seems, above almost all people on the planet, are fascinated with the royal family, and no less so with the tragic side as well as the gleeful, happy side. So recently, as we all know, Prince Philip, the Queen's consort, died. And it was during this time that when the issue came up again, we put our heads together and thought, by gum, by gosh, by golly, maybe we ought to do a show on that topic. And so, indeed, we are. Now, uh, Gina, I want to point out to the audience that you are representing Mr. and Mrs. and Ms. America, uh, simply inquiring about the British throne and the monarchy. So, say hello, Gina. That is correct. Hello. Greetings. I am representing uh, the average American person. I, I, I don't, eat, you know, I have no research to back this up, but I'm assuming a lot of people know nothing about the royals in the same way that I know nothing about the royals and completely uh, am confused constantly by them, especially when something happens like the death of Prince Philip and all my questions come to the forefront. Okay, well, let's go one, two, three, begin. So you can ask me and uh, we'll go and work our ways through this. Ready? One, two, three, begin. Okay, so Alan... The first question I want to ask is about Prince Philip. Uh, I don't understand why he is the queen's consort and not the king. Because he's married to the queen. Right. Very good question. Well, one of the things is that you have to have a concept of what's called uh, royal. And what I mean by that is you can have a prince royal or just a prince. Prince royal means that you have the bloodline. So, for instance, um, Her Majesty the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, uh, has had four children. Um, her daughter is called the Princess Anne, is Princess Anne Royal. She has the royal blood. As far as um, Prince Philip was concerned when he came into her life, and we'll get 
into greater detail with that, uh, I presume, in a few moments. But when he came into her life, um, he was indeed a prince. He was actually a prince uh, of Greece and Denmark. So he was royalty himself. And he had a very difficult early life, which we'll examine. But once he married the queen, he could not take on the role of king because king surmounts a queen. In other words, it has higher status uh, than a queen does. So we couldn't have, or Britain couldn't have in the British Empire, uh, could not have at that time uh, a person come in who would have greater authority than Her Majesty herself. So he was given the title Prince Consort. And consort is somebody who's in um, an advisory, helpful position, but cannot supplant or surpass the authority of the reigning monarch. And that is necessary when you have a queen. Now, incidentally, I will jump ahead and say something. Camilla Parker Bowles, who uh, is married to Prince Charles, who after Queen Elizabeth, after she dies, will become the king. Camilla is not given the title of queen. She will not become queen. She will become princess consort. So she would be the princess consort. Now, had, um, uh, you know, the situation with Diana been different, then under that case, Diana would have become queen. She would not have been queen royal, but she would have been queen. So we would have said King, you know, King Charles, if he wants to assume that name. And by the way, we don't know. When somebody becomes uh, a monarch, they can change their name. Uh, and assume a new name. It's very much like the Pope. When a, when a Pope, uh, the chief cardinal, becomes a Pope, the one that's elected, he can choose any name. So, for instance, we had, you know, John Paul II, well, originally, obviously, John Paul I, John Paul II, and currently we have Pope Francis. So um, he could choose okay, another wait, name. Stop, stop there for one moment about Princess Diana. Um, Princess Diana had their marriage worked out and had, and had she lived... She would have been queen, yes. uh, not queen royal, because she doesn't have the royal blood. But she would have been queen, but not Camilla. Uh, is that because Camilla is his second marriage? Yes, precisely. And the fact is, is that there's some disgrace because they were having an affair, which he acknowledged uh, in an infamous interview with British Television. And uh, of course, at that time. Uh, not only Charles had been messing around, to put it not so delicately, but so had uh, Diana herself, which she acknowledged. And so the two of them had been disloyal to each other, disloyal to the status of matrimony, holy matrimony, with the emphasis on holy. So uh, if you will, for all intents and purposes, it's kind of a, a, a demerit of, of, of not being able to use the title. So she will be the prince... Uh, excuse me, she will be the um, uh, princess consort, she will be known as, um, I'm talking about Camilla now, um, versus Diana, that if they had maintained their marriage, she would have been fully entitled to the title of, of Her Royal Highness, not Her Royal Majesty, but Her Royal Highness um, uh, Queen. Um, okay, wait, so stop there for a second. Her Royal Majesty is different than Her Royal Highness. Yes, there's only one person who's called Her Majesty, and that, or, or Majesty, uh, if, if it's a male, and that's the reigning head monarch, the monarch or the crown, as it is known. They are Your Majesty. 
everyone else related to the royal family, that means the offspring, the children, um, directly in line, that is, will be referred to as your royal highness. That means they're high up, but they're still not the majesty. So all of the family members of uh, Her Majesty uh, Queen Elizabeth II must walk behind her. They cannot be in front of her except for uh, really, truly exceptional situations, such as a marriage. Then obviously the bride and groom would be in front of the queen at that point as she sat down. But no one may precede her normally. Uh, Now, you will notice that if you remember back with Philip's funeral, that actually the queen, because of her age, she she is 95, um, the Queen uh, was sitting in, in actually a Rolls Royce uh, behind um, the mourners who were um, Prince Philip's immediate children, uh, Queen Elizabeth's children. So you had Charles and then you had Princess Anne and then you had um, uh, Prince Andrew and then Prince Edward. They were all walking behind the casket, which was pulled on a Land Rover, a green Land Rover. And so they were the immediate children. But that was rare. That normally doesn't happen. I, I understand that the queen actually wanted to be behind, that she chose yes. that. Yes, she did. Uh, and, and the reason being, I think that there is uh, a desire to show unity within the family. We're really getting deeper into this than I expected this soon, but it's all right. Um, that's because there has been a lot of flubbubs, if you will, um, with the Meghan and Harry situation, which has been one of the most hurtful things that has happened to the royal family in recent history. And we'll certainly get into that later. But anyway, let me just address now that we've brought up the title, Your Majesty. Uh, you know, in old movies, in Made in Hollywood, you see somebody come out and say, yes, sire, and what have you. The actual way to address the queen, where if, unless she comes to you, if you go to her and you're there for what's called an official audience, which means you get to spend time with the queen... An audience can be anything from, you know, perhaps a thousand people at a garden party at Buckingham Palace, or it might be an individual, like an ambassador visiting, or or perhaps somebody of note uh, from the arts or something. When you have an audience with the Queen, the door is opened, and you will see her standing, waiting to receive you. You would walk in, and before you walk in, you bow your head, and then you take a few steps, and you say, Your Majesty, and then you bow your head again. There afterwards in the conversation, you no longer say your majesty, you say ma'am. And ma'am, interestingly, the way Americans say it, so you wouldn't say mom, you'd say ma'am as Americans say it. So Americans are quite correct in in saying yes ma'am, no ma'am. And so uh, that is the designation of how you would address her majesty or later on when Charles comes to the throne, his majesty. Uh, And would you call him sir then? You would call him sir, yes. Okay, so let's talk about Prince Philip for a moment. Um, I honestly knew very little about him, and uh, but in the uh, j- just in recent time, as he was ill, and then of course he died, I looked up a bit about him and about his life and about his personality. Um, tell me, what is your perception of Philip? Uh, he was absolutely, completely uh, faithful to his role with the Queen, and he gave up a lot. Um, if you've watched the Crown series, one of the things I objected to, not because I can't entertain the idea that these are, are fallible people who make mistakes all the time. Uh, of course they do, and, and no one's denying that. I mean, I've just alluded to the fact that Charles had an affair with Camilla, and, and uh, Diana had her own, um, shall we say, escorts. 
Um, so uh, there's, I do not take umbrage at the idea of, of them being uh, flawed people. But one of the things about The Crown, the television series, which was, I thought, unkind and unnecessary, is it's, you know, the dictate of drama, you have to have a villain, right? Or people won't watch. So you've got sure. to have conflict. And they made Philip out to be a scoundrel, to be a selfish lout who was womanizing and what have you. And those that know him uh, will say definitely that's not the case. He was nothing but supportive of Elizabeth. I mean, he was the rightful heir um, when he was born to both the uh, the, the Greek monarchy and the Dan- uh, Danish monarchy. Uh, and, you know, he was born in, in 1921. He was born on the island of, of Corfu. And he was literally born on a dining room table. When he's about 18 months of age, there was a military coup in Greece. So the clear indication is if you want to live, get out. You know, you've got to remember in 1921, that wasn't far removed from, you know, the Tsar and the Tsarinas in Russia being assassinated and killed and what have you. Right. You get out of Dodge. And so uh, he was put in an orange crate unceremoniously uh, and put on a, a, a ship so that people wouldn't be able to find him. It's almost, you know, it's almost biblical in a sense. It's like, you know, most... Wait, or, orange crates like oranges, as in the fruit. Like a fruit uh, crate. He was put in a fruit crate to get him out um, through, uh, you know, th- out of Greece. And there's almost like a biblical proportion to it in a way. It reminds one of the story of Moses, you know, who's put in a basket and his mother sets right. down... The, the Nile. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of the situation he was in. Uh, they moved to Paris eventually. The family reemerged in Paris. Um, it's extremely dysfunctional. He was happy, loved his family very much. But his mother was uh, greatly affected by what had happened in Greece and the destabilization. And she became severely depressed and then later on diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Now, this was not explained to, to young Philip. Um, his mother suddenly disappears at, uh, when he's eight years of age. He's not told where she is. She's actually in a sanitarium. And um, then there's other tragedies that go on. He's uh, basically shuffled around from relative to relative to relative in Europe, nobody knowing really what to do with him. And then when he was 16, his sister was killed in, a, in an air crash. And, so, and he was very, very close to her. So um, he had an incredibly destabilized life. He eventually winds up. Uh, one interesting thing, I should say, that when he was in Paris, Americans don't know this, and I'm very happy to tell them, he actually went to an American school. Uh, it was a primary school, early elementary school, if you will. But he went to an American school when in Paris, so he was very well um, accustomed to the American accent and uh, enjoyed his little American friends that he played with. So he already built an affinity for the United States on that level. But his main education later uh, in his formative years, his later education uh, was at Gordonston, which is a school in Scotland. And uh, then after that, he uh, and, and it was a very, you know, it was a boys, exclusively a boys school at the time. And so it was very rough and rugged and you've got to get up in the morning and you've got to learn to have a stiff upper lip and you get out there and you freeze in the code and don't worry about it. You just carry on and do your lessons. So it was cold and austere, certainly in Scotland, but um, it really formulated the man, if you will. And then he went on to Dartmouth, not to be confused with Dartmouth in New England here as a college, but um, Dartmouth Naval College in Britain. And then he decided to join the Royal Navy. Okay, and, wait, 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 wait. Yep. Let's let's back up for a second. Mm-hmm. How 
I, he was born in Greece. Yes. And he was a royal right. in Greece. Well, he was born, to be more specific, he was born on the island of, of Corfu. And he was, he has, he's part of some Greek royalty. Yes, and Danish royalty. He somehow gets to England, though. Yes. And so, I mean, remember, that, as I said, they lived in Paris. So he goes to England uh, eventually, and um, uh, he goes actually to Scotland. And so the Gordonston School, as I described, and then he went on to Dartmouth, the Naval uh, College in Britain, and uh, entered the Royal Navy. And, uh, you know, he's still a prince, technically, and what have you, although the whole thing's been muddled up now because of destabilization of Greece and and uh, uh, and basically he just has to go on with his, his life the best he can. So he joins the Royal Navy, distinguishes himself, but something very interesting happens. While he's at Dartmouth Naval College, King George VI, who is Queen Elizabeth's daddy, decides to visit the Naval College uh, at Dartmouth with his wife, who was also called Elizabeth, by the way, and it is Prince Philip who is given the honor of showing the young girls around and the king and and queen. So he shows them around. And Elizabeth at this time is about, oh, I say 14. And uh, Prince Philip is about 18. Well, she is quite smitten with this man. And now there's a tremendous difference, you know, between somebody, a girl being 14 and a man being 18. Uh, there's an element of awe and like, oh, he's a real grown up. But she thought he was terribly handsome. And uh, evidently, he, she expressed a desire to write to him. So he's uh, gone into to service. Now, he's serving on ships both in the Indian Ocean and in the Mediterranean. Uh, while he was in the Mediterranean, this is during World War II. World War II breaks out literally months after Queen, uh, excuse me, the future queen and uh, Prince Philip meet. So the queen's about 14, and she... Uh, meets Philip. Philip now has to serve uh, during World War II in the Navy. He's in the Indian Ocean. He's in the Mediterranean. He serves on her, uh, His Majesty's ship called Valiant, which is a very famous ship, and uh, distinguishes himself. Meanwhile, he's corresponding to this young girl. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So they let the, they let the princess, Elizabeth... She would have been a princess, a princess royal at that time? Yes, she was She was understood to be the future heir uh, at that point. Because they had no sons. Right, right. The firstborn female. Yes. And so they let her write to this guy. Now, did they know he was a, a royal yes. from did, another they land? Yes, they didn't know that, but they, they weren't terribly impressed with him. Uh, particularly the father. And, yeah, this is a typical... I mean, royal families are not that different from your family or the family next door. Uh, you know, sometimes daddies are inclined to look askance at somebody who's interested in their daughters as that protective paternal thing comes in. And so he thought, well, it's all right. You know, he's he's gone to this school nobody knows about. What's this Gordonston school in Scotland? Okay, well, all right. He didn't go to Eton or what have you. And so, um, but they recognized he seemed a decent chap. And there were reports of him being uh, extremely uh, brave uh, in sea battles and what have you. And so they kind of, you know, kept a watchful eye on it. They didn't really like the idea of him marrying and so, moreover, this daughter is going to be the future Queen of England. So, you know, they don't want to have somebody who might be construed as an interloper. Uh, although, I mean, it's an unfair charge. But, you know, exactly who's going to be perfect for their daughter, who knows. But they looked at it with, with great caution. However, by 1947, they were engaged and then got married. And they took on the title the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh. 
Now, Americans are inclined to say, incidentally, Gina, they're inclined to say Edinburgh. I run into that all the time. But the, the city is, <laughs> yeah, Edinburgh. Uh, <laughs> but the way to correctly say it is Edinburgh. Bra, and you roll the R after the Edinburgh. B. Edinburgh. Oh, lassie. You Edinburgh. did such a great job there. I'm really... Great. Yeah, you got it. Alan, let's talk about the Duke and Duchess thing. Because that's another part, I think, that, um, you know, well, it's, I will it's get kind to of that. like... I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back okay, up. Okay, so okay. We'll you know, go just there. Just note okay. that, that hey. you know, a lot of us don't understand. Genia. Genia. <laughs> Genia for genius, I guess. Uh, Gina, I've just realized you, you're our senior producer and we have not reminded the people what show this is. Oh, yes. If you're just joining us, you do it, Gina. You, you, you tell Okay. Me. If you are just joining us, you are listening to Watching America. Uh, Dr. Alan Campbell is explaining to me, Gina Gamboni, senior producer of the show, what it is to be a royal in England and stuff like that. Uh, let me, <laughs> uh, is explaining to me the system of the royals in, uh, and the history. And, and right now we're talking about Prince Philip. Right. Okay. So we're almost wrapping this up and we'll get on to other things. But um, Okay. Uh, yes, so Prince Philip becomes uh, known as uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, and we were just talking about rolling the R's, right? And and the Queen is the Duchess of Edinburgh because they're obviously married, so the Duke and Duchess of Edinburgh. That's their title, okay? Uh, she's also uh, her her Royal Highness at that point, um, the Princess. So what happens is um, they get married, and the royal court keeps a careful eye on on Philip, uh, and he gradually wins him over and proves himself to be very, very loyal. In 1952, um, her father, King George VI, is quite ill. It was kept quiet, but he had lung cancer. He was a, a long-time smoker. By the way, if you've seen the movie The King's Speech, it is George VI who is depicted, the Queen's father, and he really did genuinely have an inability to speak. And I'm going to get to this in a moment, but he never was intended to be king. So we'll have to back up from that one. By the way, my dear American audience, I feel so sorry for you trying to follow all this. But we hope that at least you're enjoying this. Anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. You know, I think that there is a fascination from us Americans uh, about how this all works because we have nothing like this in our country. Nothing like this. Yeah, I think the closest you came to it, just as a sidebar here for a moment, um, people spoke about the Kennedy uh, years, which obviously he did not have tragically a full term after, you know, uh, January right. 1963. But um, I, they used to refer to it as Camelot. And I think that yes. referring to that as Camelot, of course, the, the musical was big at that time. Uh, on Broadway, of course, with Julie Andrews. Um, but uh, with with Camelot, there was this desire, I think, on the American part to say, mm, we want to have our own royal family. And here we have this dashing young man with great coiffed hair and a beautiful uh, first lady. And so I think that you can read between the lines that in American culture, even though you categorically renounce the idea of a monarch, there is a, a little bit of a hankering of once in a while of, Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had something like that? And then there's a, a immediate awakening of, no, 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 we don't want that. We have the Constitution. Thank you. Bye. That's right. Well, I, Alan, I want to say that I think that the 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 yearning for that is is the yearning for the what could be good about it, which is probably never, ever true. But the idea that there could be some model of goodness in some leading persons. So, for instance, you know, Princess Diana, 
oh, Americans loved Princess Diana. So many of of Americans did love her so much because she was an ideal. She she was wonderful in so many ways, and she, uh, you know, did all these wonderful things. And it was like, oh, that we could have someone who could represent us in that way and be be a model for us to tell our children to look up to. Well, I think that's a very good point. I think we're always looking for idols. Back to uh, 1952, the Queen's uh, father, King George VI, is not doing very well, and he has lung cancer. And so uh, he's not able to do his official duties, and uh, the Queen is asked, or the future Queen, Princess Elizabeth, is asked to go with her husband, Philip, Prince Philip, to... Um, to well, he's not Prince Philip in a sense. He is and he isn't. He is by the the Greek line and by the Danish line, but he's not by the British line yet. So anyway, uh, so the Duke of Edinburgh goes to um, uh, Kenya on a royal tour. Kenya is a being a British protectorate, and they're in a tree, a very very high tree house uh, for an official like luncheon of uh, what have you. And the word comes that her father has died. And so um, she's heartbroken. She immediately flies back to London with her husband. And it was actually Philip who told her and broke the news to her, um, my dear, your daddy has died. The king has died. So at that point, it's, you know, uh, the king is dead. Long long live the queen. And when the queen dies, you'll find British people and non-British people who are part of the Commonwealth, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, uh, people uh, in in all of the territories related to Britain, you'll hear them say, "The Queen is dead. Long live the King," and that, of course, will be King Charles at that moment, which will be a incredibly emotional experience. I have never known any other monarch but Queen Elizabeth. She is the longest reigning monarch of all time. Uh, she exceeded Queen Victoria. There are people in Britain who are sixty eight who have never known a time that there wasn't a monarch called Queen Elizabeth II. Now, if you think in relationship to how Americans appropriately respond to the loss of a president, you know, President Reagan, President Ford, President Nixon, love him or hate him, when a president dies, there is this um, national sense of loss. But at best, they're on the scene for eight years. Well, I can't tell you how many, you know, presidents... Uh, Queen Elizabeth has known and prime ministers and world leaders throughout the decades. So anyway, um, she is returns to England. And by the way, they had a big problem. Uh, she had to wear black getting off the plane when she arrived back in London, and they didn't have a black dress for her. So she couldn't deboard the plane, or as they say in America, deplane the plane. Um, hey, have you ever thought about when you get off a train, nobody ever says detrain the train? You know, that's that that's very true. Let's start saying that. Yeah, I'm going to detrain the train. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Or de-bike the bike. <laughs> De-car the car. Hey, by the way, I've got to ask you something, Gina. Have you yes. thought about this? If every car in this nation was suddenly painted pink, do you know what you'd have? I do not. A pink carnation. Oh my goodness! We're cu- <laughs> we're definitely cutting that joke out. That's no. is that a British joke? No, it's an Alan joke. <laughs> okay. Okay. So wait, Alan, did somebody bring her a black dress yes. so that she? So they could... had to they, they had to bring her a black dress. Okay. Okay. They had and don't cut my joke. Maybe. Maybe we'll see. Okay. All right. Uh, if you don't like it, please send letters to Gina Gamboni, care of Watching America. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> 
Um, she has to get the dress, so she gets the dress. So now, whenever the royal family travel anywhere, all of them always have black mourning dress so that they're ready to wear it should anything go awry. So in 1952, you have the coronation, and um, here's a man who, for the rest of his life, has to always be one step behind the queen. He may not be in front of her. Um, there were some personal indignities that he had to suffer. For instance, his, his adopted name was Mountbatten. Uh, his actual real name was the German origins to it, as does the queen. By the way, the royal family are essentially German. Uh, people aren't aware of that, but I'll go into that later. And so um, there was an issue that when the queen had children, what would be the last name for the royals, for the royal children, the offspring? And the royal advocators said it must be Windsor. Now, the royal family adopted... The royal who? The royal family adopted... No, you said the, did you say the royal advocator? Yeah, the royal advocates. You know, the, there are people in the court who talk... Uh, uh. Who are like a... a uh, consorts of a different sort at the court and they advise and they give advice to the royals and the issue came up with uh, because of World War I they had German last names the royal family at this point because the, the, the royal family was split off in different areas and so the, 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 the German line came into uh, prominence to continue with the lineage going back to the beginning of the royal family and so they had a German last name. And so this was not very favorable when you have, you know, the Kaiser issue in World War One. So they said, hmm, maybe we want uh, to drop, drop this German association. So right. they needed to adopt a name. And so they chose to use the name Windsor, which is where Windsor Castle is. So that's why the technical name of Her Majesty is Elizabeth Windsor. Wait, so did they just pull Windsor well, the, well, there out was of nowhere? Windsor Castle. There was the town of Windsor, and it still exists okay. there, and Windsor Castle. In fact, that's where Philip has been placed temporarily to rest, by the way. He's not going to be continuously in the vault, Prince Philip, okay? Oh, he's not? No, he's there temporarily. He's actually going to be moved when the Queen dies, so he's temporarily down in the vault, but he's not going to be there. And by the way, underneath that vault is King Charles I, uh, who was beheaded. Uh, because Britain had its own civil war, and uh, so we, we had a man called Oliver Cromwell who came to power, and he threw out the royals, so uh, King Charles I is down there with his head lopped off, uh, and also is Henry VIII. So, in fact... Um, the infamous you, Henry VIII. Henry VIII is buried there. I need to explain where we are. Uh, okay. When you talk about... Uh, boy, we're all over the place. When you talk about it's unavoidable, ladies and gentlemen. I just it, the, the the royal family is so complicated. You, you, you're jumping around. It's it's one of those things where you have to know everything instantly. Okay, uh, which means you know, which really <laughs> means you know nothing at all. Okay, right, um, right. Uh, and I'm speaking self-reflexively here. Um, so anyway, the the uh, there are many homes that the queen uses. The longest continuously occupied castle in all of Europe is Windsor Castle. Okay, we're talking nearly a thousand years of that castle being in operation, 900 years and more. So um, it's always been occupied by royalty, never not been occupied by royalty. So that's that's um, Windsor Castle. That is where Meghan and Harry got married. But I need to explain on the location of Windsor Castle. You have a round tower and you have turrets and all kinds of medieval things. and where It's arrows. beautiful. It's so lovely. It's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. But on the grounds is a chapel 
which I might add is the size of a cathedral. They call it a chapel, but it's the size of a cathedral. The patron saint of England is St. George. And so you have what's known as the Cross of St. George. If you see the pure English flag, which many confuse with the Union flag, most of the times when you see a picture of a flag for the UK, you've got red, white, and blue, right? Okay, that is a combination of three kingdoms coming together. It represents the uh, Cross of St. George, which is normally just a white flag with a red cross on it. And if you've ever seen pictures of knights with chain link garments on and what have you, they're usually bearing the cross, the flag of the cross yes. of St. George. Which yes, is I've red, seen it. Yeah, red on white. Yes. The Scots have the patron saint, St. Andrew. And St. Andrew, it is believed, was uh, executed uh, on a X-shaped cross. And so that is the, uh, the, the cross of, of Scotland. Well, because you, uh, England and Scotland united, then you've got that. And you also have the flag of Wales, although that's actually a griffin, is on, uh, which is like a, a dragon-type creature on the Welsh flag. But the combination of all three with Northern Ireland, which is called the Union Jack, creates that, uh, that cross and, uh, if you will, I guess the best way to put it is X-shaped pattern, which most So this people... kind of star. Yes, it's, it's a combination of three kingdoms. So I'll explain really quickly. There's the United Kingdom and Great Britain. People get confused, understandably, about the difference. Great Britain is the singular island of mass land, which is Scotland in the north, England in the south, and out to the west you have Wales. Okay, so that is that's Great Britain. And that comes from a term Britannia, uh, which was, you know, used by the Romans. And you have, you know, Londinium was the original name for London's because the Romans uh, came into um, uh, Britain and had dominance there until they eventually left. They never could control the Scots. They were just too unruly and they gave up. The Romans went as far north to an area which is known as Hadrian's Wall. And, um, no, you know, wait, Alan, ex- I dated, I dated uh, a gentleman when I was in college, uh, and I was in college over in Europe, and I dated a gentleman from Wales, and I spent a little time in Wales, and I would say that, that the Welsh are, are just about as, as wild and, yes. uh, and, what's the word I could say? Unruly. About a, as wild and unruly as any other group yes. in Great Britain. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm Welsh. My middle name is Lloyd, L-L-O-Y-D. So I'm also Welsh. Right. And the Welsh have a tendency to, they, they go up in tone like that when they talk. Yes, yes. It's, it's a very distinct accent. Anyway, so where were we? Oh, yeah. So on the grounds of Windsor Castle is the Chapel of St. George. Again, the patron saint of traditionally of, of England. And so um, that's where M- Meghan and Harry were married uh, and had their wedding service. And it is also where Prince Philip is temporarily. But again, uh, when Meghan and Harry walked down the aisle, or actually, it was Meghan with uh, uh, Prince Charles. Uh, he walked her down because you may remember her father couldn't come. He had had heart issues and, and what have you. Right, right, right. Very kindly, uh, Prince Charles, um, the future king of England, walked her down, was very loving and gracious to her. And they actually walked over the grave of, of Henry VIII, who's buried there. So, um, and, and the different royalty are buried in different areas. I mean, for instance, if you go to Westminster Abbey, that's where you're going to have Queen Elizabeth I is buried. And also um, her sister, 
uh, uh, Mary Queen of Scots is buried there as well, and of course a lot of other kings and queens. So um, they're all sprinkled throughout various locations. Uh, Alan, you know, they have all these decisions that they have to make, uh, the royal family does, and we know that there's a lot of tradition involved, and then they have the royal advisors. How exactly do these things get decided, things like where Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth II will be buried? Well, first of all, she has an awful lot of leverage being queen, Queen Elizabeth, uh, because of, of the length of time that she's been in position. Let me clarify something that I think most Americans do not understand, uh, and that is the queen has no real authority in relation to anything to do with government. In fact, she cannot make a single statement about a government policy, about a law. I, there's this idea that... Um, uh, it was true, you know, centuries ago that a king could say, you know, off with somebody's head. Even in biblical times, you have examples of that. But, um, uh, you know, we had this thing called the Magna Carta, which said, and it was basically um, the lords of the land saying, we're not going to put up anymore with the king telling us what we can and cannot do. So the Magna Carta came along. And then after that, there were also uh, pro uh movements made so that they, the kings and queens would consistently lose power. So they don't have a right to make any law. In fact, Her Majesty is not allowed to say a thing in Parliament uh, that is not given to her. So the Prime Minister, for instance, uh, which would be... The way we have a Prime Minister is it, the, the leader of a party becomes the prime minister in america you have you vote for the person you vote for a candidate who becomes um if not with the most popular vote then certainly with the electoral college becomes the candidate who has the most votes accepted on electoral college level and then they become the president uh but the way it works in britain with a prime minister is you elect a party and if a particular party with its stance um, gets in and people like that, then the primary leader, hence the term prime minister, becomes the leader of the nation, representing their party. So in other words, if we were to apply the same system in America, the Democrats, if let's say they, they, they wanted to be the winning party and the, the country could vote whether or not they wanted to go Democratic or Republican, they would vote, everyone would vote, say, I agree with the Democratic Party, I'm going to put my vote this way. And if it got the most votes, the Democratic Party, then the Democrats would say, this is our principal leader, this is who we want to be the president. Do you see the difference? I do, I do. Okay, so... And and so and so Queen, Queen Elizabeth has, she, has no, she has no power. She has no power. And she can't even speak against the government. Right, and let me show you how this is, 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 is borne out. Uh, in Parliament, for instance. Now, by the way, the, what people call Parliament when they see the tower, the clock tower, they, they call that, they, they look at the building and they say that's Parliament. It isn't. The Parliament is actually the people inside the building. The actual name of that building is the Palace of Westminster. And by the way, Henry VIII had, had access to it uh, and, and, and used that as well. So it's called the Palace of Westminster, but most people look at it and say that's where Parliament meets, which it does. There are two houses. There is the House of Lords... And that chamber you can always recognize because it's in red. Everything's scarlet, red, 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 red. And that's where the queen once a year can go. And then there is the House of Commons, which is like uh, basically would be considered perhaps the lower house, but that's the one that has all the power. And so they're like representatives of counties and towns and what have you, as you have in the United States. 
and they are the elected officials by the people in Britain. And when the Queen comes to open Parliament, which she does once a year, and she's incidentally opened Parliament in Canada, in Ottawa, and places like that, in, in other uh, British Commonwealth nations. Um, but when the Queen comes to Parliament in England, she uh, will go to the House of Lords and sits on the throne with Philip used to be by her side. And she would say to um, her messenger, would you please have the members of the Commons please come to Her Majesty's House of Lords? And so the man nods his head and he takes a rod with him and he's called Black Rod, that's the, the title. And as soon as he crosses over to the other side of the building, which is where the House of Commons is, which most people will recognize from seeing on C-SPAN or what have you with green, that's all green. So whenever you see the green leather chairs and everything, that's the House of Commons, our Congress, if you will. And as soon as he walks across to the other side and he arrives, they slam the door on his face. And that is—it's <laughs> deliberate. Yes, yeah, it's—it's—it's—it's it's centuries old. They slam the door on its face, and some of the people on the inside would say things like, "Get stuffed, get out of here, go, 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 put it where it belongs," and stuff like that. And they deliberately will be very rude to this guy. So he takes his rod, which is a just—I would say—you know, half the size of a of a pool cue, but he taps three times on a piece of wood, and he goes bang, bang, bang. And then finally they will open the door and then he walks in and he uh, goes to the front to the House of Commons and he says, Her Majesty is requesting your presence. And then very reluctantly, they'll all start to follow and walk out. Now, in truth, most members of Parliament love the Queen, but it is a gentle reminder that you do not have the authority to tell us what to do or to even come in here. She's not even allowed into Parliament to the uh, House of Commons. She can't even go there. And by the way, that goes back to Charles I, because Charles I, who got his head lopped off, uh, came and showed up at Parliament. And they said, no, you can't do this. And then uh, this chap, Oliver Cromwell, came over and and, uh, England had its civil war. And we lost the monarchy for a while. Uh, And then the monarchy came back with Charles II. Wow. Okay, so... Listeners, um, I've got to tell you, the quiz will be on Tuesday. I suggest that... <laughs> You're listening to Watching America with with uh, Dr. Alan Campbell rambling on about a very complicated subject. And I am, uh, yes, and I and I am trying to understand it. And, and actually, I, I do understand it, all in its little pieces. But there's so many gaps to... Uh, to make the full picture, which I think perhaps takes years, and then that's why people even uh, dedicate years of studying this kind of thing... Uh, to understand it. I, I have to ask you, uh, in terms of the Queen's role, she is not a political figure. She does not She does not even advise. Is that right? She doesn't even advise? She has a meeting. This is an interesting thing. Okay. So uh, the way the British look at the Queen, uh, let's say just the, I'll just stick to, to Britain right now. The way the government looks at the Queen, particularly England, they look at her as uh, kind of a safe haven because she represents tradition, but it's the best of safe havens because she has to keep her mouth shut, as I've said. However, there is still a courtesy. So, um, for instance, on that occasion when the Queen invites uh, the, 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 the commoners uh, into the House of Lords, where she sits, she is presented then with a letter from 
a speech, actually, the Queen's speech it's called. She's presented with a speech from the Prime Minister and she has to read verbatim what it says. And she says the following. My lords, my government will this year, blah, 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 and it lists all the things that the government hopes to do. Uh, in fact, let's play an excerpt from it. Here it is right now. My lords and members of the House of Commons, my government will ensure fairer markets for consumers. A priority will be to build a more united country, strengthening the social, economic and cultural bonds between England, Northern Ireland, Scotland and Wales. My Lords and Members of the House of Commons, other measures will be laid before you. I pray that the blessing of Almighty God may rest upon your councils. And, and so that's the Queen. So as you can see, she says, my government will, my government will. But the fact is, is that, you know, she has no say in uh, She's just basically a parrot. I mean, that's true. And everyone knows that. However, everyone in Britain knows once that. Once a week, Gina, on, on a Tuesday, Tuesday afternoon, um, the Prime Minister will leave um, his house, which is 10 Downing Street, which is where Prime Ministers live in Britain. And he leaves 10 Downing Street and he goes to Buckingham Palace and he will meet with the Queen and she will receive him. And the door is closed. Nobody ever knows what they talk about. And she just uh, is informed by the Prime Minister of what's going on in the Houses of Parliament and also internationally. She may give advice to him, but it cannot be known and it's not allowed to be stated. And it, all, almost every single Prime Minister has said about her that it's, it's uh, uh, a wondrous thing to be able to do because... You see, she's been around so long. Her first prime minister that she invited was Winston Churchill. Wow, it's amazing. I mean, she's been dealing with prime ministers since Winston Churchill, Margaret Thatcher, of course, May, and on all the way on to, to, to the current. And so she has this wealth of information that she can say, you know, you might want to consider doing it this way. Uh, but again, she has no authority and no power. But the government does support the royalty financially. Is that correct? Yes, and that gets into uh, an, another good area of how things have changed. Um, let me just very, very briefly explain that currently in, I'm just speaking about Europe, there are seven kingdoms in Europe, there are two principalities, and one area which is known as a Grand Duchy, okay? So the seven kingdoms that currently exist, that means thriving, uh, extant, existing royal families, are in Belgium, Denmark, the Netherlands, Norway, Spain, Sweden, and, of course, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, okay? Two principalities, uh, which would be Liechtenstein and Monaco. And Monaco, as we all know, is very, very small. Liechtenstein is not very big either. Um, although, actually, the Prince of Liechtenstein is the wealthiest of all monarchs. He's worth $7.6 billion, yes. So everyone thinks the Queen is the wealthiest. She's, she's not, by any stretch. And then there's uh, what's known as the Grand Duchy, which is in Luxembourg. And um, there are actually two areas where you have still um, a kind of monarchy. Actually, if you look at the Vatican, it is a monarchy, technically. It is a theocracy monarchy, but it is a monarchy. So Pope Francis is the head, and he's elected. And um, basically, when, when you think of the Vatican, people think it's been there for, you know, centuries on and on. It was only 1929 that the Vatican became an independent of Italy or of Rome. So obviously you have the Vatican within Rome. I've been there myself. And um, 
It's about 121 acres, but it's an elected monarch, and the Pope technically is a monarch. In other words, they have embassy, and they have their own uh, currency and, and, and uh, post office and what have you. The other small monarch is uh, Andorra, which again has uh, elected uh, monarch involved there as well. So as you go through them quickly, you have you know King uh, Philippe of Belgium, Queen Margaret II of Denmark, King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands, King Harold of Norway the fifth actually, uh, King Philippe the sixth of Spain, King Carl the sixteenth, Gustav of Sweden, and uh, and Hans Adam, uh, Prince of Liechtenstein, who I've told you is very wealthy. Uh, and then Prince Albert, or some would say Albert II of Monaco. And then um, you have Henri, uh, who is uh, uh, in, it's a Grand Duke, actually, of, uh, of Luxembourg. So you have. Now, let's, let's stop for a moment on Monaco. Yep. Monaco, an American actress, became the queen there. Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly. I read her autobiography when I was in high school. And I hope you returned it. What? <laughs> it's a joke. It's an old joke. I read her autobiography. Well, I hope you returned it because you like, I read her book and you say, I hope you, re- never mind. Oh, okay. oh, 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 oh. Actually, I'm not, now that I said it though, I'm not sure if it was a biography or an autobiography. Anyway, Grace Kelly. It would be a biography. She never wrote about herself. Yeah, okay. So uh, uh, Grace Kelly, she was an American actress who married the king or the prince. The Prince of Monaco. The Prince. There are two places which um, uh, you have what's known as a sovereign prince, which means they don't have a king. You can have a monarchy without a king. So, uh, like, as I said with Liechtenstein, it's Prince Hans Adam II, uh, and then Prince Albert or Albert of Monaco. Uh, so he was, uh, is a sovereign prince. That's the, her son right now is, is the Prince of, of Monaco. So they, she was never a queen, actually. She was a princess. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Now... Right now, we've got to touch on this, Alan, which is the the schism that's happening in the royal family right now, and noting at the same time that Prince Harry married an American actress as well, uh, and and of course the royal family is having a lot of problems. I don't I don't read all of the uh, the gossip pages about about it, but it's widespread enough, including in media in the United States, that I know about it. Um, What's your take on, on that? Okay, well, first of all, you have to go back to history, okay? So bear with me for a moment, and I'm going to walk us through this real fast. Okay, okay. okay. Ladies okay. and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Watching <laughs> America. Okay, so I, I, I kind of want to give everyone a historical perspective of what happened, all right? Most Americans are familiar with Queen Victoria, okay? So she reigned from 1839 to 1901. Then she had a son called Edward VII. He was known as Bertie. He was a great womanizer, okay? Now, there used to be an old king called Edward the Confessor, all right? But this one they called Edward the Caressor because he was always caressing women and touching them and what have you. And he had multiple affairs with Sarah Bernhardt, the actress. Lily oh, my Langley, goodness. Even Jenny uh, Churchill, believe it or not. So um, he was all over the place and quite a playboy. But then he eventually died after only nine years. And then George V was from 1910 to 1936. He had a son called Edward VIII. Now, this is where you've got to listen. Edward VIII was the one who abdicated because he got involved with an American lady called Wallace Simpson. Now, this was a constitutional crisis in Britain. Here's why. Okay, wait, 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 wait. This is going to be a two-parter, Gina, this thing. Wait.
Indeed, this is going to be a two-parter. We've run out of time today, but in our next episode of Watching America, we finally get to chatting about Meghan and Harry and a few other things about You've the British royalty. You've been listening royalty. to Watching we'll see America. And we'll never be royals. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer, Chuck Dowd is our executive producer, and Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.